volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost Box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you this time. Neil Simon is a former independent candidate for the United States Senate in the state of Maryland, and he is the author of Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. And, uh, Neil, we welcome you on the Hill. Thanks for having me. All right. Um, to backtrack and orient people uh, about your, uh, your campaign, uh, you ran uh, as a, a third-party candidate I I in the state of Maryland uh, when incumbent U.S. Senator Ben Cardin was up for, for, for re-election. Uh, at the time, you had said uh, that it had been you know, since 1980 uh, that there was a, a, an election in the state of Maryland that did not send a, 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 a Democrat to the Senate. Why did you think it was so important for not only to run, but run as an independent. I think our political system is broken and that we have stopped making progress for the American people, whether it's about immigration or healthcare or education or preparing for the jobs of the future or controlling our enormous national debt, we're really not getting anything done. And a lot of it is because we're stuck in gridlock caused by two polarized parties going after each other, trying to win the news cycle every day, rather than trying to work together on behalf of the American people. So I ran against all that. I ran against the partisanship and the divisiveness. I ran on pragmatic solutions to our nation's problems. And I thought in 2018 that it might be, might be the right moment, that at this moment of extreme divisiveness, maybe Americans were ready for something different. But the truth is what I discovered was a system that makes it nearly impossible to compete as a moderate independent. So shed some light on that for people. Is this a stacked deck that you're looking at if you go, and I'm not, this isn't a director of the Democrats or Republicans, but in either one of the two major political parties, what are you up against? It's absolutely a stacked deck in every way, and that's really what my book is about. So it is stacked right from the outset in the way you get on the ballot. It's stacked in the way debates work. It's stacked in the way money works. All of the money is at the two extremes of the system. It's stacked in the way that we all pay for these primaries that are used as the semifinals of our elections, but yet they also push everything to the bases of the two parties. So in almost every way that our political system has changed in the last three or four decades, it's stacked the deck against moderation against progress against independence and against third parties it's interesting what you just said that all the money was pushed to the extremes and to the edges but is that where the people are is that where the majority of the, of the voters heads right if, if the money all lives at the edges and everybody's in the middle it seems like the priorities are not where where the voters are so some people are at those two edges. There was this study done called the Hidden Tribes Study by a group called More in Common, 
and they found that 8% of Americans are part of the progressive activists, and 6% are dedicated conservatives. And that's 14%. The rest of us are not there. The rest of us are somewhere in between. But it's that 14% that marches in Washington, that sends letters to their congressmen, that contributes to campaigns, that are vocal advocates for their causes. And so the dialogue, especially when you turn on television, you turn on radio, tends to reflect that 14% at the two extremes. The voices in the middle, a lot of people have started calling the exhausted majority or the silent majority. And we all need to speak up for ourselves and say, hey, we want something better. We're in a government that actually works. Over the years, people have said that we need more political parties in this country. Um, you know, we do have other political parties in this country. However, only two of them, the Democrats and Republicans, seem to make up, uh, you know, our, our, our government. Um, is that something that needs to be looked at, partisan elections? You go to local governments, very often you'll see nonpartisan elections, say, in town councils, which seem to work rather well. Um, is that a possible solution? If we're not going to get rid of the political parties themselves, then, then maybe remove the partisanship from the actual election to begin with? Make everybody an independent candidate. A lot of people don't realize that there are no political parties in our Constitution. There's no party primaries in our Constitution. Our system is not supposed to work the way it does today. It's supposed to work more like what you just described. Our founders had envisioned a political system with independents running to represent their constituencies, running on their own conscience and their own beliefs of what was best for the country. But over time, we've ended up with this two-party duopoly. In the 1950s, there was a political scientist named Duverger, he was mm -hmm. French, who studied po different political systems, and he determined that when you have a system like ours with single-member legislative districts and with winner-take-all elections, you naturally end up with a two-party system. And over time, it will become more and more and more polarized and then it will become even more polarized. And you just keep moving in that direction. And that's exactly what's happened. Unless you do something yeah. to change that cycle. So at the, that's really what my book's about, is how do we start to do something? Otherwise, this is going to get worse before it gets better. You know, Trump has contributed to the divisiveness in our society, but we were very divided before he was elected. And if the Democrats win the next election, it's not going to get any better. It's mm -hmm. just going to keep getting worse. We have to do something. So there you were in 2018. You had, you had gone through this race uh ultimately you were not successful you were not elected to the united states senate but you were left with this now bounty of first-hand information having done this having having actually run for the senate so when did the wheels start spinning of i need to tell people about this i, I need to let them know what i saw which ultimately led to this book contract to unite america so I never thought I'd write a book. A lot of people never? Dream, dream about yeah. writing a book. I never dreamed about writing a book. But very shortly after the election, I was reflecting and I just had developed this belief that the entire system is really stacked against progress for the American people and that it wasn't supposed to be this way and that there were a set of specific changes that we could make to change the incentives in the system, to give politicians and lawmakers an incentive to actually 
compromise and work together for the American people. And so I decided to start writing a book. Did you know immediately when you start that this is going to be a book or were you writing essays or just jotting this down? What was the launching point where you finally realized, I think I got a book here? I started writing an outline for what I thought might be an essay or an article, and then the outline turned into a 40-page outline <laughs> with a lot of <laughs> potential stories to weave in. So the book I wrote, by the way, is not a political science textbook. I'm not a political it's scientist. Fair, it's a, I can tell you, and uh, as I went through it, um, and this is a compliment, by the way, it's an easy read. Um, this is not versed in technical political jargon. It's not... A lot of hyperbole. It's very plain. But it's almost like having a conversation with you right now. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. So I tried to make it read much more like a Michael Lewis book. Although yeah. I'm not as talented a writer <laughs> as Michael Lewis than a political science textbook. So it's told largely through stories, uh -huh. some from my campaign, but yeah. many from campaigns around the country and many historical to explain how we got where we are today. And um, just for your uh, information, it is... Uh, from Real Clear Books. Uh, that is an imprint of Real Clear Politics, which many of you who probably listen to this uh, podcast are aware is a, uh, a online site, which uh, is a, uh, a, a remarkable wellspring of information, especially during a uh, political season uh, with all sorts of uh, political information, polling data, stuff like that. Uh, it's uh, one of my go-to sites, and they now have a, a book publishing arm of uh, Real Clear Books. They've been a terrific partner for me. When I was looking at partners for this book, I wanted an organization that would not be viewed as being on the right or being on the left. And that is surprisingly difficult to find these days, Tom. <laughs> it is. You're listening to the On the Hill podcast from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This is the On the Hill podcast coming to you from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. Our guest this time is Neil Simon. He is a former independent candidate for the United States Senate in Maryland, and he is currently the author of Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. Let's go through a couple of these uh, these reforms, Neil, because I actually think they're, they're pretty interesting uh, and worthy of discussion, and I, I want to start with uh, the very first one. Why, why did you, first of all, decide there were going to be 10? So first, every one of the reforms in my book is supported by at least 60% of Americans, mm -hmm. some as much as 83%. Um, the first one is about opening primaries, mm -hmm. and there are 30 states in this country where they don't keep track of what your party registration is. Let me read this. It says the Open Primaries Act, this is the first one, every publicly financed election, including primary elections, will be open to all registered voters regardless of, of party affiliation. So you would have Democrats voting in a Republican primary? So that's how it works, by the way, in 30 states in this country. Most people don't realize that. Most states do not keep track of your party registration. You show up on election day and we all pay for those elections and you're allowed to vote in whatever primary you want. So, so if you're a Democrat and you like somebody who's the Republican or if you're a Republican who likes somebody as a Democrat, you can get into that process earlier and support that candidate. Right. And why it's so critical is that in most jurisdictions in this country today, Tom, the only election that matters is the primary. So if you're mm -hmm. running 
in Montgomery County, Maryland, it's all about the Democratic primary. If you're running in rural Texas, it's about the Republican primary. So mm -hmm. you want to have a voice in that election. And maybe mm -hmm. I want to vote, even if I identify as a Republican, I might want to vote for the more moderate Democrat in that primary. But what do you say to the argument of anybody who looks at that and says, well, you're opening the door to interference in one party's primary, that another party could identify a weaker general election candidate, have their supporters support that person in the primary, get them onto a November ballot, and set themselves up for victory in November if they were to get the weaker candidate onto the ballot. It doesn't happen. Most states already do this again, and it doesn't happen. Maryland, my state, is one of only nine states with completely closed primaries, which means that in all elections, me as an independent, and my three children have all registered as independents, we're not allowed to vote in a primary unless we've registered in advance for that party several weeks in advance. Uh, here's another one. Uh, uh, number two is an educated electorate act. Uh, a nonpartisan federal debate commission will be created to ensure the fairness and caliber of presidential and congressional election debates. Um, we do have presidential debates. We're not really guaranteed congressional debates. They kind of happen, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit ad hoc. So are what you're advocating here is a requirement that if you are going to be one of these candidates, you have to debate? You won't have to show up, but what I'm advocating for is a, um, a system where each congressional race, whether it's for the House or for Senate, you schedule three debates, you have debate thresholds, polling thresholds, 1% for the first debate, 2% for the second debate, 5% for the third debate, and you invite all the candidates that meet those thresholds. And if they don't show up, you make that known to the public. What happened in my race was that Senator Cardin had agreed to have two debates. We had the first one. It went very well for me by all accounts. And then he would never schedule the second debate. And he had also agreed to a set of town hall meetings, which he would never schedule. And there's no way to make him do that. And I think voters deserve to see the candidates. The no. voters deserve to see them side by side, understand the differences, hear them articulate their positions. And in my case, the voters of Maryland were denied that opportunity. Number three is the term limits constitutional amendment. You want members of the U.S. House of Representatives to be limited to three terms of two years. That would be six years. And members of the U.S. Senate will be limited to two terms of six years. Now, we have a restriction on how long the president can serve. We've talked for a long time in this country about term limits for Congress. The problem is it's Congress that would have to make this change. So how would we enact term limits onto politicians that don't necessarily want term limits? They all seem to be in favor of it when they're running for office. But once they get into office, not so much. So this reform is the most popular of all 10 of the reforms. 83% yeah. of Americans support congressional term limits. And even I, I try to find out who's against term limits. And I think my answer is pretty much it's sitting politicians is that 17%. Because among the other people who are against it, if you ask them, well, does that mean you're also against term limits for the president and for governorships? 36 states have term limits on their governors. They'll say, oh, no, I'm in favor of that. So maybe that's okay for Congress, too. So it is hard to implement this one. So this is one of only two of the ten reforms that requires a constitutional amendment. And there's a group called the U.S. Term Limits that's mm -hmm. been organizing that process. 
and hopefully we'll be able to get that done. It's a, a hard one to get done. Why six years for the House, 12 years That's for the, the way they've laid out their amendment. I'm not, I don't feel passionately about those numbers, but when you poll on this, the shorter the limits are more popular, meaning the American public supports short terms as limits, and that's what they support. One of the first. pushbacks you do hear, you know, politicians don't like to run around and say how they're against journalists. One of the pushbacks you do hear, though, from the politicians that are in power is that, well, you lose institutional knowledge. You, you, you lose um, some ability to, to have your hands on the, on the, on the levers of, of government. Would, would, would any of that hold up in your view if somebody only had six years up on the Hill in the House? So let me ask you. Do you think Congress is this highly functional organization where we're going to, if we have term limits, we lose all these skilled representatives who are getting so much done for the country? Well, I think one of the I, dangers is, though, that then you put all that power into the institutionalized staff. And then you're having unelected people, really, with their hands on those levers. So some people make that argument, but I yeah. will tell you the lobbyists who, in your theory, would benefit from um, not having term limits, they all advocate against term limits I mean, meaning you're in your theory they, they right. benefit from that they all are against term limits and they'll spend money against term limits so i don't think it's the case i i think what you see today is that our legislators the skill that they're developing with their experience and their tenure is their skill at playing partisan politics and at fighting partisan games i want to combine four and, and five because i think they do go together yes. uh, election transparency act and the campaign finance constitutional amendment you want in number four uh, some 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 daylight here. Uh, any contribution over a thousand dollars to any candidate uh, must be disclosed publicly. Uh, a lot of that information is out there, but you have to go looking for it. Um, and also the campaign finance constitutional amendment. Governments um, basically um, passing a constitutional amendment. For, what would that do on on the money question? Because when you talk to folks about that, that is one of the things that's been driving both of these political parties, either on the Republican side to the right or on the Democratic side to the left. What would these four and five uh, issues do on your list here to, you know, what the book is about, Unite America? Right. Our campaign finance system is broken, and Americans agree that it's broken. We have too much influence in the ideological extremes and there's too easy an ability to give limitless amounts of money with no accountability. So the fourth reform is about transparency. Mm -hmm. And I believe that all contributions, actually over $100, should have to be disclosed. Right now, contributions you give directly to campaigns are disclosed, but it's very easy to give money through other entities, through what we call dark money, and none of that is disclosed. Mm. So there are millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on elections, and we have no idea whose money that is. I want to group six and seven as well, too, because I think they, they uh, actually, I'll pull eight in on this as well. Six is Ballot Access Act. Seven is Fair Districts Act. Eight is Fair Representation. I think this gets to the issue of gerrymandering and um, voting rights. Uh, that we have a system in place here in some areas discourages voting, makes it harder to the vote than it should be. But yet we also have politicians choosing their voters instead of voters choosing their 
their politicians. How do we change that? Right, so the seventh reform is about redistricting. So right now, our districts are drawn by politicians to benefit their party. So you, like you say, you have politicians choosing voters rather than the other way around. So the solution to that is to have independent commissions and to not allow them to use party registration as one of their criteria. So several states have done this. It works. Mm -hmm. There are 24 states in this country where you can pass things like this through ballot initiatives. And last year, in 2018, we had five states pass initiatives for redistricting reform. And it's not a silver bullet. Some people get carried mm -hmm. away with the impact of redistricting reform. Mm -hmm. It will, right now, we have only 10 to 15% of the general election house races that are competitive. If we had redistricting reform, that would move to 20 to 25 percent so it would help mm. but we need a lot of other reforms um the tenth and, and final one is creating a culture of unity and um that really kind of does get to the heart of what the book is all about contract to unite america neil how how do you think we get back there because when i think in recent history of the times that we've been united um you know i go back 40 years when people were you know, putting yellow ribbons up on trees and waving American flags during the Iranian hostage crisis when the U.S. hostages were taken. America united at that point. Um, I think about 9-11, obviously, during the Persian Gulf War, the beginning of the, you know, the war in Afghanistan. Clearly, as that progressed, though, there was divisions that sowed deep and still exist in, in a lot of areas. But it seems to me, in, in my modern recollection, that the the times we really are the most united is when there is some, you know, cataclysmic event or something that has happened to America or something we're reacting to. How do we get that unity without the mechanism of the cataclysmic? event and, and is that possible in your view I, I think it is so uh, you have to decide do you believe that we are a naturally highly divided society that is as a result electing divisive leaders or do we have a political system that incentivizes our leaders to be very divisive and to push us apart and I think it's the latter and I think that through a set of political reforms we can change that and we can have leaders that will be promoting unity but you're now not just yeah but you're not just talking about waving flags here you're talking about something much more important which is if you have a political disagreement with somebody you don't look at them and just say oh you're the worst person ever because that's kind of where our our vocabulary is these days if i don't agree with you not only do i not disagree with you you know you look at twitter you're the worst person in the world you know we can't have you know, you know, a, a civil discussion or disagreement with each other anymore. And if somebody does, it's a remarkable thing. And where does that language come from? I think it comes a lot of it from our elected political leaders. They're leading by example with divisive, angry language where they belittle each other, where they demonize each other. And I think we as American citizens need to rise above that. But are they, are, they, are they leading the way on that, or are they just reflecting what our society has become? 
I believe they're leading the way. I, I look at my companies that I've run and how culture starts at the top and permeates an organization. And I think that's what we've got as a country. Our culture is defined by our leaders. And I think this started before Trump. Trump has certainly contributed to it, but it started before Trump. And our culture was defined by political leaders who find a lot of benefit in being divisive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of America sadly follows. Social media has a role in this as well? Oh, absolutely. It's the social media and the echo chambers in which we're all living where the, the messages that we believe are reinforced mm -hmm. and amplified and echoed back to us. That, that contributes a lot. Well, if you are a little bit burned out on the back and forth on social media, I urge you to get up and get yourself an old-fashioned book because this one's pretty interesting. Uh, and it's a positive uh, outlook uh, in a world of politics right now that can tend to be pretty negative at times. Uh, it's optimistic. It's forward-looking. And hopefully it's something that maybe uh, can't cure all the ills of our politics, uh, but certainly uh, could serve as a pretty good tonic, especially for uh, those of us in our individual lives uh, when we go out and we talk about these things. The book is called Contract to Unite America, 10 Reforms to Reclaim Our Republic. And the author, Neil Simon, has been kind enough to join us this time on The Hill. Neil, we thank you. Thank you, Tom. All right. We thank you as well, too, from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This has been On the Hill. We'll see you next time. Ven a JCPenney y termina tus compras navideñas con brillantes descuentos como hasta 70% en joyería después del cupón. Además tenemos velas, mantas suavecitas y más desde $7.99 y miles de doorbusters en marcas como Adidas, Champion, Disney y Carters. Recoge tu pedido el mismo día. Es rápido y gratis. Estará listo en dos horas o menos hasta las 3 p.m. en Nochebuena. JCPenney, celebraciones que valen la pena. Ofertas válidas hasta el 24 de diciembre en selección de estilos. Aplican exclusiones. Doorbusters excluyendo los cupones. Detalles en la tienda jcp.com.